Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Well, it is a new day. We are going over the informal slash just my brain splurge of an episode on Bleak House. This is serials 13 through 16, our penultimate series of episodes on this wonderful cataclysmic novel. And we have a bit of an interesting slash different-ish outline for today, and that is we don't have or at least I don't have comments for every single chapter this time, just chapters and quotes, for example, and events and things to analyze that I found particularly notable as I was reading. I expect that next, the next series of episodes on Bleak House, i.e. the serials 17 through 20, will have a lot more content just because these these particular, this particular group of serials has really contributed to the plot moving forward substantially, that there are still a lot of unknowns though, and that's the thing that kind of holds us up from being able to do a really robust analysis for a lot of the section. So let's start here in Serial 13, Chapter 39. There's a wonderful quote in the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of the text on page 518. The one great principle of the English law is to make business for itself. And the reason why I like this quote and the reason why I think I've drawn quotes that are similar to this or function similarly to this one out of the text throughout this whole series is that for this particular novel, it's so, so important to keep the broad view in mind. In other words, it's of course very good of you, right, and of us as readers to keep track of the plot, to keep track of the hundreds of characters that this novel involves, and to be up to date, for example, on the minutiae of what's going on with each of these characters and how the characters are connecting, who has met whom, and etc. It's also, however, so important to keep in mind that there is a, an overarching goal of Dickens's here, and that is to essentially expose how overdrawn and overwrought the Court of Chancery is, how uh, ridiculous it is that the Court of Chancery can't get anything done, and of course, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, the suit that is being read at the Court of Chancery at the moment, among others, is the living embodiment of this horrible inefficiency. And this central theme of the Court of Chancery being insufficient for to do really anything helpful is so imbued in the text so as to affect all of the characters, all of the events of the plot, all of the settings even of the plot. So we've got a lot of connections in various ways to the Court of Chancery and indeed to the suit Jarndyce and Jarndyce. 
On page 519, we've got a really interesting parody talking about voles. And I really enjoyed reading this section because it reminds me of some of Dickens's earlier, more humorous work. <laughs> so again, we're on page 519. Quote, The respectability of Mr. Voles has even been cited with crushing effect before parliamentary committees, as in the following blue minutes of a distinguished attorney's evidence. Question. Number 517,869. If I understand you, these forms of practice indisputably occasion delay? Answer. Yes, some delay. Question. And great expense? Answer. Most assuredly, they cannot be gone through for nothing. Question. And unspeakable vexation? Answer. I am not prepared to say that. They have never given me any vexation. Quite the contrary. Question. But you think that their abolition would damage a class of practitioners? Answer. I have no doubt of it. And on and on and on, unquote. <laughs> Very, I mean, I thought this section was hilarious. It's just so, I mean, again, this like dramatic, really overemphasis of all of the traits <laughs> connected not only with the Court of Chancery, but with... Uh, the characters involved, Voles, for instance, you know, a very stereotypical lawyer who is asking all these questions that are, you know, very short to the point, very directed questions, leading questions, one might say. So it's, um, it's hilarious to me, and I think what I find, again, particularly alluring about this passage is that it's a connection to Dickens's older work where he involved parody in a much more overt way than in this novel. One thing that I wanted to discuss briefly is Vols's desk, and there's this lasting metaphor throughout the passage with Richard Carstone and Vols when they're discussing the case and payment, etc. Um, that Vols' desk is a rock, and I just found that to be a really interesting metaphor of in this dusty, dingy, antiquated office, there's this giant rock, or you know, a symbol, <laughs> a rock in the middle, which is Vols's desk, and there's, he makes a big emphasis of this desk, and I think that's part of the reason why it becomes a symbol of this rock um, within the text. And that's my question to you all, is what does, what purpose does the rock serve? And I can think of a couple uh, purposes, namely um, this consistency, but not unfortunately for Richard's purposes, it's consistently consistency on Vols's end of him constantly demanding that he be treated correctly or treated uh, fairly in terms of his payments so that he can pay for his daughters and for his father. Um, perhaps also solitude, perhaps also it really symbolizes kind of the antiquated nature of not only this whole affair between Richard and Vols, but Vols's profession, perhaps the Court of Chancery more largely, but I would love to know what you all think about that point. On page 526 is our next quote. Quote, but injustice breeds injustice. The fighting with shadows and being defeated by them necessitates the setting up of substances to combat. From the impalpable suit, which no man alive can understand, the time for that being long gone by, it has become a gloomy relief to turn to the palpable figure of the friend 
who would have saved him from this ruin and make him his enemy. Richard has told Voles the truth. Is he in a hardened or a softened mood? He still lays his injuries equally at the door. He was thwarted in that quarter of a set purpose, and that purpose could only originate the one subject that is resolving his existence into itself. Besides, it is a justification to him in his own eyes to have an embodied antagonist and oppressor." Unquote. So this quote talks a bit about almost the symbolic nature of, of Richard's role in the court case in Chancery. Richard is merely the newest victim of this court case, in a very literal way, I might add. The cousin Jarndyce, before John Jarndyce became sort of the main uh, bearer of the estate, so to speak, in the case Jarndyce and Jarndyce, um, his predecessor killed himself and essentially went mad in, in before doing so because he was so imbued in the court case and because he was so involved in it. And he... I'm sure there's a an undertone there that, you know, I picked up on as, well, he realized it couldn't be solved and he had wasted all this time and all this energy and all this effort and money on this case and he realized that it was all for naught and that it would never be solved. So thus comes the dilemma. Richard, of course, is very overtly going down the same rabbit hole as this predecessor of John Jarndyce's. And the what's interesting is I think the following quote on this page on 526 again, quote, is Richard a monster in all this? Or would Chancery be found rich in such precedents too if they could be got for citation from the recording angel? Unquote. So, you know, talking about sort of at the end of all this, at the end of life, that is, life itself, who is to blame here? And was Richard really at fault for his interest in the case, for his uh, really obsession with this case? Or was it the Court of Chancery itself and the allure therein? Alright, let's go to chapter 40, page 534. I won't read any quotes from this page, but what I did find fascinating about it is that there are first-person pronouns used by the omniscient narrator, and it has a really spooky effect in my opinion. Um, it's almost like there's an omniscient person above all of this action going on, probably Dickens in some senses is the narrator in himself, but it's almost like there's some person above all this watching it play out, and they are recounting this whole thing to us in, in this brilliant, magnificent detail. And wow, it, I did find it spooky though, <laughs> to find all of a sudden in the middle of an omniscient narration, I will read a quote here, um, quote on page 534, so did they see this gallery hushed and quiet as I see it now, so think as I think of the gap that they would make in this domain when they were gone, so find it as I find it, difficult to believe that it could be without them. So pass from my world as I pass from others, now closing the reverberating door, so leave no blank to miss them, or so die." Unquote. And so this is Chesney Wald. Uh, the narrator is kind of walking us through Chesney Wald and what's going on there since we last left it. And yeah, again, there's a lot of spookiness around Chesney Wald 
as a place in general. It's the place that Lady Deadlock revealed that she was Esther's mother to Esther. It's the place that houses the ghost walk, and it's a place where Tolkienhorn, of all people, finds some respite, seemingly. It's a place of great conflict, and it's a place of great mystery as well. So it's very fitting, although still creepy, <laughs> in my opinion, to have this first-person pronoun situation going on in the middle of this introduction of Chesney Wald, or reintroduction of Chesney Wald, I should say. The scene later in this chapter, chapter 40, where Tolkienhorn and Lady Deadlock and Sir Leicester Deadlock and a few family members, Volumnia I believe is there, are sitting in the dark and Tolkienhorn is recounting essentially Lady Deadlock's own story, but in general terms to the whole room, essentially to subliminally let her know, or maybe not so subliminally, pretty obviously let her know that he knows what's going on with her. And he's recounting, recounting the story, it's, it's dark, they send the Mercuries away with the lights. And what I find fascinating about that whole scene is, I mean, what a mood to set in this um, very dreary part of the book where we're really slogging through the hopeful resolution of Lady Deadlock's predicament, which really is very central to the book as a whole and, you know, in my mind has a lot of bearing on Jarndyce and Jarndyce and what's going on there. So it's, I mean, you know, setting the mood. If you need a scene for that, here it is. Chapter 42. So in chapter 42, uh, we have this introduction to the chapter as Dickens so likes to do in these, um, where it's a pretty wide angle on the situation. It's kind of like, I've, I've described it as an aerial view in some senses. We're following Mr. Tolkienhorn to his rooms in London, his chambers in London, before he gets murdered. And in the second paragraph here on page 551, we've got a really interesting passage that I'd like to highlight. Quote, Like a dingy London bird among the birds at roost in these pleasant fields, where the sheep are all made into parchment, the goats into wigs, and the pasture into chaff, the lawyer smoke-dried and faded, dwelling among mankind but not consorting with them, aged without experience of genial youth, and so long used to make his cramped nest in holes and corners of human nature that he has forgotten its broader and better range, comes sauntering home. In the oven made by the hot pavements and hot buildings, he has baked himself drier than usual, and he has in his thirsty mind his mellowed port wine half a century old. Unquote. I mean, he literally has wine on his mind, in other words, but <laughs> aside from the point, um, there is this amazing characterization of Tolkienhorn as he's walking home. And, you know, what I love about Dickens in this respect, and especially, especially, I would say, in his later works, with Bleak House definitely falls within his the realm of his later works, along with Great Expectations, for example, is this ability to not just say Tolkienhorn was going home to London and it was dusty and hot outside and Tolkienhorn, as we know, is very old and pompous. Instead, he likens Tolkienhorn 
to a dingy London bird. And he says that the lawyer, i.e. Tolkienhorn, is smoke-dried and faded, dwelling among mankind but not consorting with them. And so we get this very specific, almost devastating sense of what Tolkienhorn is like, not only in this moment as he's walking home, but also throughout all time. And it adds to a deeper, I think more lasting characterization of him. And also perhaps uh, if we really dig into it, clues as to what happens to him and why, and sort of his function in the book as a whole, which I mean, it can be largely debated because he's a very, uh, I think he has a very specific purpose in this book as a whole, which I'm not at liberty to discuss until we finish the book, but there's this sense that we know, again, Tolkienhorn as he always was not only as he is in this moment. And I love this description of him again because it's not only specific, but it lends itself so well to this artistic characterization of this event um, that Dickens, you know, spent his career developing and really honing in in just such a beautiful way. All right, so let's go to chapter 43. On page 560, this, talk, this is talking about Skimpole's London apartments. I did not touch on this in much detail in the earlier episode this week because I really wanted to touch on it here. Um, on page 560, it says that Skimpole's salon is, quote, furnished with an odd kind of shabby luxury, uh, unquote. And, you know, it's so fitting to me, of course, that uh, Skimpole's apartments, or really some Skimpole's singular room in his like a apartment building, is furnished more nicely than anyone else's. And you have this sense that these daughters, and his wife especially, are being particularly neglected, but that they're not necessarily passive parties in this neglect. And I find that to be a really interesting situation in some ways, because we have historically in Dickens' writing, a lot of social calls, right? We've got Oliver Twist, of course. Um, we have just a lot of, you know, there's the Tale, Tale of Two Cities, that's, you know, sort of a political book. There's a lot of very interesting social memorandum in his work as a whole. Um, but unlike those, this situation seems to be a sort of paradox in itself, where we have this neglect, and Dickens is calling out the neglect, I think in a very overt way, um, when he's over-dramatizing the comedy daughter, and the sentiment daughter, and the beauty daughter, and of course their names are super, I think the, uh, Sentiment daughter is named Arethusa, who is a figure from Greek myth of, you know, someone who's very overtly dramatized as sentimental. So, I mean, he's calling out the state of this family in a very overt way, I think. But at the same time, and, and you know, Skimpole is at fault here. That's no question at all, in my mind at least. I wonder what you all think. But... At the same time, there's this willingness to participate in the situation, I think on all of their ends, and somewhat, of course, in this at this time, 
women aren't as mobile in general. Um, they, you know, these girls, even though they're older, they have no noticeable skills. So that's a huge issue. But they also don't really have a willingness to go out and learn those skills or to leave the situation at all. So it's a really paradoxical situation. I think one that stands out in Dickens' work uh, especially with regard to what he says socially about children and these kinds of situations in general. Chapter 44. So I wanted to look again, and I know I talked about this a bit in the other episode, but uh, page 577, I wanted to look again at the scene between John Jarndyce and Esther when uh, she accepts his proposal. Alright, so, quote on page 577, I had made up my mind to speak to him now. In short, I had come down on purpose. Guardian, I said, rather than he rather hesitating and trembling, when would you like to have the answer to the letter Charlie came for? When it's ready, my dear, he replied. I think it's ready, said I. Is Charlie to bring it? he asked pleasantly. No, I have brought it myself, guardian, I returned. I put two arms round his neck and kissed him, and he said, he was this the mistress of Bleak House? And I said yes, and it made no difference presently, and we all went out together, and I said nothing to my precious pet about it, unquote. What? I mean, okay, at, at first I was, you know, overjoyed. I'm like, yes, Esther, finally, you know, getting some goodness out of the world. And, you know, she's been very fortunate thus far and she takes pains to acknowledge that. But at the same time, we've got a lot of uh, hardships for her. She's constantly taking care of people, constantly fixing people's messes, um, getting ill herself sometimes and sometimes in a really drastic way. So there's, you know, a lot about Esther that's, that becomes, you know, balanced because of her constant, okay, I'm going to take care of someone, but then someone needs to take care of me kind of situation. So, you know, I thought at first, how romantic, you know, she's going to kiss him and they're, they're going to go about their day. And then as I, I kept reading this section, I realized, wait a second, this is really not that romantic in a few key ways. Uh, first, I said yes, and it made no difference presently. <laughs> what? I mean, after you say yes to an engagement, usually everything changes, right? I mean, maybe like not substantially in Emma by Jane Austen, but there's, I mean, between Emma and Mr. Knightley, but I mean, it was, it's, she's just accepted a huge offer and nothing changes. I mean, are you kidding me? And we all went out together, that, that is the three of them, John and Ada and Esther, and I said nothing to Ada about it. Okay, it, it's a big deal, you know? It's not something that you would just casually hide to someone who not only lives with you, but is so close with you, is family. So, Again, there's a couple just major issues, major red flags about this that I did not catch the first time I read it and I've been thinking about incessantly since I started to realize that this engagement between Esther and John, at least in my mind, is not as secure as I once thought it was. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe at the end of the book, I'm not going to give away the end of the book, but <laughs> maybe 
Esther and John do get married, but I'm holding out hope at this point for Woodcourt. Who's with me? No, I'm just kidding. I don't I don't really want to create a love, a love triangle here, but I do want to draw attention to the uncertainty of this passage, or at least the seeming uncertainty that this passage lends to their engagement and development of their relationship. Let's go to chapter 45. On page 580, there's a really fascinating characterization of Mr. Voles. If you can't tell, I'm kind of obsessed with Mr. Voles. I'm wondering how a character that's introduced or who was introduced so late in the novel could have this wild of a characterization. I mean, it's it's so interesting to me how Dickens really puts little credence. Of course, like, main characters versus supporting characters in Dickens are different, of course. Yes, that is without saying. But we have Mr. Voles, who is characterized in a similar way to a lot of other supporting characters who have been here for the entire time, right? Skimpole. And what's particularly a kernel to me in this is that they get a lot of time up front and then every time they come back they get more time. So we've already have the we've already had this really detailed overview of what's going on in Vols's office and we get that characteristic over aerial overview kind of scene in his office and there's a lot of really general broad sweeping descriptive uh, descriptive elements in that particular passage or really that half chapter <laughs> that we get in Bulls's office and here on page 580 I'm gonna read another characterization I'll read two characterizations one from the middle of the page and one from later on Quote, Mr. Voles, whose black dye was so deep from head to foot that it had quite steamed before the fire, diffusing a very unpleasant perfume, made a short one-sided inclination of his head from the neck and slowly shook it, unquote. And then the next quote from this page, quote, Mr. Voles put his dead glove, which scarcely seemed to have any hand in it, on my fingers, and then on my guardian's fingers, and took his long, thin shadow away. I thought of it on the outside of the coach, passing over all the sunny landscape between us and London, chilling the seed in the ground as it guided along." Unquote. So we've got this dead glove, we've got the shadow, the dye, all very dark, almost poisonous kind of imagery. And you have to think, if this is the way that Esther, of all people, who really looks on the bright side of all of these characters, all of these circumstances especially, I mean, come on, uh, she's characterizing him in such a gloomy, I think overwrought kind of way, then what effect does she think he's having on Richard? And indeed, what effect is he having on Richard? And how close is Esther's characterization of him to the omniscient passage that we saw earlier in this group of serials. And I would say they're pretty consistent. I mean, um, Vols is described, at least his space is, is described as much more substantial in the omniscient passage, right? We've got this like sheep odor. I'm sure it's super musty in there. Uh, it must be stifling <laughs> from the description, and that has presence, right? That has body to it. 
There's also this desk as a rock metaphor that I keep bringing up because I'm trying to figure out exactly how it operates within the text. Uh, again, I would love to hear your comments about this. And that's also a very, you know, substantial physical kind of metaphor. And especially as Vols is moving his hands over the desk, he's, you know, <laughs> kind of tapping on the desk and so forth. Uh, that's also a physical kind of presence that he has. And yet we have not only this like dye and the smell that's coming off of him <laughs> before the fire, which is super gross, uh, which is also, I would say, pretty substantiated, right? It's it's a presence in a different kind of way, and it's almost as if this dye that he's covered in um, has replicated the circumstances in his office, just wherever he is, uh, in this case at Bleak House. And then in this particular later passage with his hand, like this ghost of a hand on their fingers and then the shadow sweeping across the distance between Bleak House to London. That's really interesting to me. It, it seems like there's a, there's a darkness there, there's an insubstantiability there that seems like uh, Esther is maybe either the first to pick up on or the first to articulate. So we'll keep an eye out for this going into the latter parts of the text. And then again, something that I think I would never be quite remiss to comment on yet again is this bias of Esther's narrative. And it becomes again clearer and clearer as we get through the text. We have Esther's skewed view, especially of herself, and I think also of Alan Woodcourt and of John Jarndyce, and of course of Ada. Ada doesn't have as much, I don't want to put this uh, in a way that's not giving Ada her full credence as an operative within the text, but she doesn't really have a substantial impact on the plot in the way that Lady Deadlock does, or in the way that Tolkienhorn does, or Guppy, or Esther herself. So um, she does definitely have a skewed view of all of these people and including herself, and that is just brought out again and again by this scarring incident and her just commenting all the time about the uh, particular scarring. Serial 15, chapter 47. So there's a passage that I did not talk about in the Tuesday episode, or the Monday episode rather, and it's this extended metaphor of during Joe's death, that is, of a cart wrapping up its journey and stopping. And it develops over several pages. So there's this kind of extended, simultaneous metaphor going on. As Joe is dying, there's this cart. And to me, it almost seems like the cart represents like his breathing, like his breathing is really labored and rattling and such like that. Um, and you would think, you know, there's a correlation between breath and life. It could very well be. But there's this in interestingly complex theme of religion throughout that whole chapter. And I almost think of Alan Woodcourt's involvement in that theme, in that Woodcourt is like a saintly figure throughout all this. I'm not gonna overwrought the metaphor, but... 
he is kind of a saint and he walks around the lowest parts of this uh, whole book and this whole setting and he heals people is really what he's doing and he helps people and so he really is this kind of saintly godly kind of figure and him meeting with Joe who is the lowliest worldliest person you know aside from maybe Sir Leicester Dudlock uh, in the book he that interaction is very strange and very peculiar and it comes across in this cart metaphor somewhat because the cart is very much you know a worldly low kind of simile to draw here but then there's this scene that I found pretty heartbreaking where Joe is in the middle of saying the Lord's Prayer for the first time with Alan Woodcourt and Alan Woodcourt is you know reciting the prayer line by line with Joe and he dies in the middle of saying that prayer for the first time and there's a lot that that could mean you know and it's that was I think so devastating to me that he couldn't even finish his first prayer and he couldn't even finish his first renouncement of the world and I think that just kind of settles in to assimilate his character to what it's been the whole time kind of this might of the world um, and yet there's that beauty in all of these wonderful people having empathy for Joe's situation uh, George and to an extent Phil his assistant and Woodcourt and Snagsby uh, and Esther of course and her crew so it's you know very devastating but it's also simultaneously hopeful. Chapter 48 on page 620 quote there is a splendid clock upon the staircase famous as splendid clocks not often are for its accuracy. And what do you say? Mr. Tolkienhorn inquires, referring to it. What do you say? If it said now, don't go home. What a famous clock hereafter. If it said tonight of all the nights that it has counted off to this old man of all the young and old men who have ever stood before it, don't go home. With its sharp, clear bell, it strikes three quarters after seven and ticks on again. Unquote. So I found this scene to be very strange, and I think it's strange for a reason in that it's foreshadowing what's about to happen, which is of course Tolkienhorn's death. And gosh, it's, yeah, there's a lot here. So the clock, right, um, Tolkienhorn's time is up, and the clock has outlived, has seen so many lives before, right? And Tolkienhorn is just sort of the latest victim in the clock's life. And the clock, of course, is indifferent to all this, so of course it's not going to say, don't go home on this night of all nights. And it's just a witness, I think, as many of the characters are in, in this circumstance. And Tolkienhorn's death is a huge deal in this book, right? He is the one person who has leverage over Lady Deadlock that we know of. Perhaps Bucket will see, but there's so much that Tolkienhorn dies with in terms of information, in terms of secrets, right? He's known for his secrets, 
And he's sort of one of the last of his class of lawyers in London. You know, certainly Kengi and Carboy, certainly Voles, very different kinds of lawyers, kinds of people than Mr. Tolkienhorn. They don't have the same kind of uh, reverence to them when they interact with other characters. So this passage, this part that I just read marks kind of the beginning of the end for Tolkienhorn, and I found it really interesting that Dickens would go back into a decor, a decorum almost, like a, a decorative symbolism to mark the beginning of the end. I mean, we've got so many other symbols in his own apartments, you know, the Adam with the finger and all of these different portraits on the ceiling and his wine and it seems really that Tolkienhorn is a very materialistic kind of guy and so it's it's not only fitting but I think so yeah just fitting and fascinating as well that Dickens would again use this nod to materialism to send Tolkienhorn off so to speak. And then of course follows the passage between Tolkienhorn and Lady Dedlock, and the question of course is, is that foreshadowing? Is it a trick? There's reasoning, reasoning behind it, right? But uh, this kind of foiling that takes place between Lady Dedlock and Tolkienhorn is also very apt in this part of the book as things are coming to a head, right, with Tolkienhorn's death. And the pacing, I think because of this back and forth between Tolkienhorn and Lady Dedlock, the pacing definitely increases, somewhat exponentially actually. Chapter 49. So I have a quote that I just thought was fun as we go into the end of the book here. Um, and it is on page 628. And it's during Mrs. Bagnet's birthday party and her children are bustling all about preparing everything for them, or for her, rather. Quote, the great delight and energy with which the two young ladies applied themselves to these duties, turning up their skirts in imitation of their mother, and skating in and out on little scaffolds of patterns, inspire the highest hopes for the future, but some anxiety for the present. Unquote. And I just thought this was fun. I mean, it explains the the lust of beginners so well, and they're so happy to be able to help their mom on this one occasion. Um, and, and that, you know, serves them well that they're able to muster up so much moxie for this particular event. And so um, I just thought it was fun. I like how it describes kind of the aptitude of all beginners, and I think there are so many truisms and Dickens in general, and that's one of the great values that I find in Dickens is that there's so much truth maybe illuminated by the over-characterization of a lot of these characters or places or events. And I think that's there's a lot of value in that. Alright, chapter 53. The only thing that I wanted to touch on last, and this is, you know close to the last, last chapter of this serial, is Mr. Bucket's relationship with Mrs. Bucket. I'm very confused. I'm kind of ambivalent about Dickens's characterization of women in general. And 
Mrs. Bucket has a lot of nods throughout these serials, which I find fascinating. Um, and we know that Mrs. Bucket and Mr. Bucket both love children. Mrs. Bucket is a sub supreme amateur detective, like she's very intuitive about uh, detective work, but it says that she never gets the opportunity to really develop her skills because Mr. Bucket keeps her in the dark a lot of the time. Also, Mrs. Bucket is plagued with headaches and takes a lot of walks. We know, of course, that she was out walking on the night of Tolkienhorn's murder. And Mr. Bucket kind of has these moments, like one of them is at the funeral, Mr. Tolkienhorn's funeral, that is, and he sees her and he's, you know, thinking to himself, wow, she looks really sublime, wow, she looks really good, and, you know, kind of calls to her, like, wow, you did a good job today. And it's, to me, it's like kind of uncomfortable, kind of awkward, and, and the way that for example, Mr. Bucket treats Mrs. Bucket compared to the way that Mr. Snagsby treats Mrs. Snagsby. Similar but different, right? And you get these kind of contrastive characterizations, but they're all within the same extreme. They're all, you know, very doting on their wives, but they just kind of express that doting tendency differently. Um, but I find it interesting that Bucket would hide so much from his wife and go so far, maybe, as to suspect his wife for murder, um, and yet keep so much information from her. And it seems like this is a normal thing, by the way, not just something that is related to the Tolkien horn death. Alright, that is all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you so much for your time and for your attention. We will be back with our last summer YA book for the year, and that will be three books actually, The Hollow Trilogy, on Sunday, Monday. So until then, fellow listeners, I will see you on Sunday, Monday. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.